do not have time this morning for attention-grabbing introduction. You see, today we are talking about Christ alone, of, of which we just sang. And, and so, we could and perhaps should spend the rest of our lives on this particular topic. After all, Christ is the central figure of Scripture. And, and so, I struggled all week contemplating various introductions, but how do you introduce this most glorious of all topics? Any attempts, I concluded, would fall woefully short. So let's get to it. L- last week, we learned that there were five solas which summarized the theological and biblical convictions of the Protestant Reformation. Remember, they're Latin. The word sola means only. The, f- the five solas of the Reformation then are sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, and sola deo gloria. Translated, they are scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and the glory of God alone. I found a great quote in a book this week that summarizes these truths. Reformation theology is often summarized by the five solas. Scripture alone stands as the formal principle of the Reformation and the foundation, get that, the foundation of all theology. God's glory alone functions as a capstone for all Reformation theology, connecting its various parts to God's, listen to this, to God's one purpose for creating this world and humanity in it, for His glory. In between these two solas, the other three emphasize that God has chosen and acted to save us by sovereign grace alone, through faith alone, which is grounded in and through Christ alone. A great summary of the five solas. It helps explain why the graphic in your bulletins on the screen are designed the way that they are. With Scripture as the foundation, the glory of God as the capstone or the apex, actually of all history, Christ at the, at the center, surrounded by grace and faith. Now, I, I hope by the time that we are done with this five weeks series that you are dreaming about the solace, as I do. But, but why, why were the reformers of the 16th century so committed to these five foundational truths? Because the church of the Middle Ages had somehow inserted itself in the place of, or at least alongside, these onlys. So it wasn't Scripture alone, it was Scripture and the church alone. It wasn't Christ alone, it was Christ and the church alone, and so on. So, so last, week, last week, we began with that foundational principle, Scripture alone. Now, for the Reformers, that meant that there was only one divinely inspired and therefore inerrant authority over the church. That is the Bible, the Word of God. The Bible becomes our supreme authority for faith and practice. It's not our only authority, but it's the only inspired and inerrant authority and therefore the foundation upon which we build um, as a church. You come to Alliance, you're going to get Bible. All all other authorities, to, to include the church must submit to and be consistent with 
the Scripture. Christianity is built on the eternal truths of Scripture. Remember, the church, seen embodied in the papacy, that's the popes and the councils, that they said that it, alongside the Bible, was also an inspired, inerrant authority. In fact, truth be told, since the church claimed to produce the Bible, they, saw, they actually saw themselves in authority over the Bible. Incredible. Incredible. The, the church and the church alone, they said, has the authority to interpret the, the Bible and give its meaning, which is why... Um, People were discouraged, more than discouraged, from having a Bible in their language and why those who translated the Bible in the language of the people were hunted down and burned at the stake. Last Friday, day before yesterday, is the anniversary of William Tyndall being burned at the stake in 1536. In fact, the Roman church was always out to get John Wycliffe for, among other things, translating the Bible into English in the 14th century. They were never actually able to catch him. So after um, he died, they found out where he was buried, dug up his bones, burned them, and sprinkled his ashes in a nearby river. That's how opposed they were to you having the Bible that's sitting in your lap. That's why, by the way, the, the, the masses were said in Latin until 1962. Didn't matter if you understood. Incredible. Now, to be sure, the church of the Middle Ages did not dismiss the inspiration and authority, inerrancy and authority of Scripture. They just placed themselves alongside the Bible, actually, again, over it, and therefore they see themselves to the present day as the supreme authority over the lives of believers. And so, when the Pope gives a papal audience at the Vatican, it looks like this. Lots of people there in his presence. But when I'm standing in front of St. Peter's Basilica, it looks more like this. <laughs> Actual picture at the Vatican, front of St. Peter's, taken a couple of weeks ago. That's enough. You'll also remember I said the truths recovered by the Reformers are just as important today as they were then. That we would spend each week looking at the 16th century context of the sola, the biblical basis of the sola, and then the still current abiding truth of the sola. I said that while the reformers were, were battling the church and its misplaced self-importance, placing itself again along, alongside Scripture, Christ, grace, faith, and glory, <laughs> today the attacks against these eternal truths while still coming from the Roman Catholic Church, also come from our culture. In, in fact, in more insidious ways. So last week, we saw culture had, has denied the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. Catch that. They have, they have placed human reason and human autonomy above Scripture. Further, they have become the Scripture's judge, jury, and <laughs> executioner. The Roman church never did that. That, that. that wasn't the problem of the 16th century. The church affirmed Scripture. They just elevated themselves to the level of Scripture. Today, 
However, there are both those inside and outside the church, supposedly, who have dismissed the Bible. And if you think about it, they have to. You see, to accept the authority of Scripture is to make yourself submissive to it and therefore accountable to its author, God. All of our And in all of our rational, personal, autonomous freedom, we certainly don't want to be accountable to anyone or anything, certainly not to a holy God with whom we have to do. I want to live my life how I want to live my life. Don't tell me that that book has anything to say or has authority over me. So it's quite convenient to deny Scripture and then ultimately God altogether to make ourselves our own self-determining Authority, freedom, is not all it's cracked up to be. Well, in preparation for this week's sola, solus Christus, as I typically do, I typed that in the Google search engine, and as usual, I visited a number of sites to include Wikipedia. Now, I know Wikipedia is not inspired nor is it inerrant. But it can be interesting and helpful to read. So this week, I typed in Solus Christus, and Wikipedia had its entry, and it was fascinating. It started with a definition of the, of the term, which, isn't, which actually isn't bad. Solus Christus, Christ alone, quote, is one of the five solas that summarize the Protestant Reformers' basic belief that salvation is obtained through the atoning work of Christ alone, apart from individual works, and that Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Read any book on Solus Christus, and they talk about that. It holds that salvation cannot be obtained without Christ. Hallelujah and amen. They got that right. Pretty good. <laughs> They're then following my pattern. The, 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 the next section was entitled The Biblical Basis of the Doctrine. The author of this article, whoever it is, inserted seven... Hmm, Passages of Scripture which affirm solus Christus. But, but, but Wikipedia, in its inerrant, infinite wisdom, as it often does, threw a flag with the following inserted warning. This article uncritically uses texts from within a religion or faith system without referring to secondary sources that critically analyze them. Please, please help improve this article by adding references to reliable secondary sources with multiple points of view. Are you kidding me? Do do you see what Wikipedia does? This article has the audacity to appeal to the Word of God as its source of authority. How dare it? This article doesn't refer to to more authoritative secondary sources. In other words, human sources which critically analyze and thereby judge those sources from within this faith system. Please help us. The article here needs help. More, the Bible needs your help. And be sure and provide multiple points of view because after all, truth is relative. Do you see where we are in our culture? The Bible is not to be trusted as a critical, reliable source of truth. I'm sure that you have been told that same thing. For example, you cannot cite the Bible in your critical research papers. You must cite more credible sources, right? I mean, the Bible is kind of like Wikipedia on the same level. I remember when I was in um, 
it was either high, high school, later years of high school, or maybe it was my first year of college in a secular college, actually a military academy. And, and I said to the professor, I wanted to write a paper and I wanted to cite the Bible. And he said, no more than two. We can't have too much truth. Okay. So remembering our points for each of these five Weeks. We'll look at the 16th century context of Solus Christus and then the biblical basis for Solus Christus and then the 21st century context. I could have said need. Is it, do we still need it? Solus Christus. Let's begin with a definition followed by the reformers' context which gave rise to the need of, uh, uh, of Solus Christus. It's simple. Actually, you could actually use that Wikipedia uh, definition. It's pretty good. But a simple, thorough definition of Christ alone goes like this. Christ alone is Lord and Savior. That's his identity. Don't miss that. He is Lord and Savior, and therefore, he alone is able to save, and his work is all sufficient. Said another way, Christ alone is exclusively the Son of God as to his identity, and therefore, because he is God the Son, all sufficient as to his work of atonement. Now again, like last week, that may sound painfully obvious to us, but it was not so in the 16th century. It was obscured by the church. And, and, and so while the Roman church would affirm the divine identity of Jesus, they added to his work, that is to the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and by doing so, the, the reformers said they actually dis, diminished the all-sufficiency of Christ alone. So I want you to get that. The, the, the Roman church did not deny the deity of Jesus, they just denied the sufficiency of his work. They taught that the work of Christ was important, in fact, indispensable, but it was insufficient. The work of Christ was not enough. You have to do your part in your salvation, and it just so happens I can tell you how. How did the church do it? By adding an incredibly complex sacramental system. Write that down if you're taking notes. Sacramental system for justification. Now, justification, I defined last week, is how am I made right before God? The church said, by observing our sacramental system. They claimed, you see, to be the guardian and dispensers of God's saving grace. In short, they said salvation is not by grace through faith in Christ alone. I mean, that's kind of important. Rather, salvation is to be earned does that, that, that cause anybody any heartburn? Earned through the observances of their sacraments. Here's how it went. There were seven sacraments. There was baptism, um, which, which they did to, to babies. There was confirmation, which confirmed the act of baptism. There was the Eucharist. That's communion in the Mass. There's penance, critically important. We're going to talk about that. Anointing the sick, um, which includes extreme unction or last rites. Um, there's holy orders. That's the ordination when you become a priest or, or whatever. And then there is matrimony. Marriage is good for your salvation. I don't know if it makes me say, but it's certainly good for my sanctification. I might go with that one. Now, I'm not going to define each of those. Nor would the church likely, the Roman church likely rank them, but I would suggest that baptism, the Eucharist, that's the Mass, communion in the Mass, and penance 
are the most important as they deal primarily with sin and justification. How am I made right before God? Here you go. I'm going to tell you. Follow this. At baptism, typically as a baby, the guilt and consequences of your original sin, the fact that you were born a sinner, at baptism, that's all washed away. In fact, at your baptism as a baby, you are actually regenerated and brought into the church. That's great, I suppose, but there's a problem. As we grow up, we still sin, and those sins must be dealt with. No problem, they've got a solution. That's why the Eucharist, that's what the Eucharist and the penance, and penance are for. First, the Eucharist, communion during the Mass, is how you receive the body and blood of Christ and are thereby sanctified. Re- remember last week, I told you the Roman um, church still teaches this thing called transubstantiation. That is, when the priest holds up and blesses the, the, the bread and the cup, the elements literally turn into the body and blood of Christ, making every mass, listen, every mass a resacrifice of Christ over and over and over again. Which is great, I suppose, since you likely sinned since the last Mass. Not only that, but the sacrament of penance also deals with your ongoing sin, you dirty, rotten scoundrels. Penance is, is made of three parts, contrition, that is feeling sorry for your sin, confession, and that must be made to a priest, and satisfaction. That's important, satisfaction. Satisfaction are works or or, or duties assigned by the priest, depending on the severity of your sin, by which action you receive absolution, that is the removal of the guilt of your sin. So if you want to be absolved from your sin, penance, contrition, confession, and do some works of satisfaction. You don't want to do those works? No problem. We got a way for you to buy your way out of that. We'll talk about that later. Now, of course, no one besides the saints could, ad- could adequately do enough penance, or I should say can adequately, because they still teach this, do enough penance to include works of satisfaction. You can't do enough to, to skip temporal punishment. Your, st- your sins still cling to you. So you're going to have to spend some time in purgatory, from the word purgare means to purge, purgatory, to, to purge the remaining pollution of your sin that's on you. Yes, Jesus, through his cross work, will provide eternal salvation for you, but it's up to you to purge the dross of your remaining sin. Purgatory. Bad news. Purgatory. I know you're purgatory for you. All this leads to a very important distinction. Catholic Church has taught a system of what is called infused grace. Write that down. It's important. Infused grace. What do I mean? They say Christ, by his death, burial, and resurrection, provided grace for you, made it available for you, and through the sacraments by which you cooperate with Christ, you receive infused grace. Think of it this way. Think of it as a bank account. Every time you observe those sacraments, you get a deposit of grace. But every time you sin, you lose grace. Think big withdrawals. At the end of your life, 
your remaining balance of grace based on your works of sacrament determines your time in purgatory. Some of you I'm looking at, you got a long way to go. In the end, you are earning grace. We'll talk about that more when we get to grace alone and faith alone, but the reformers came along and said, no! This sacramental system diminishes the full sufficiency of the work of Christ. There is nothing to be added to the grace that he freely gives. I mean, first of all, they said five of those sacraments aren't, as sacraments aren't even found in the Scripture. And second, while baptism and the Lord's Supper may be a means of sanctifying grace, they argued about that, they agreed that they were not a means. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not a means of justifying or saving grace. You don't do those things in order to be saved. You do them because you are. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. 1520, 1520, after the posting of the 95 Theses in 1517, October 31st, when we're going to be here, listen, that announcement, you know, we hope that we outgrow it. Listen, we are not meeting in the atrium. We will have too many people, right? Because we're going to meet in here, yeah. So we posted the 95 Theses, Church of Wittenberg, and then before the Diet of Worms, which was in 15. April 1521, Martin Luther wrote three very important works in 1520. First was to the Christian nobility. The second, which was published, by the way, last Friday, the the anniversary uh, of that last Friday, the Babylonian captivity of the church, and the third was on the freedom of Christian. The middle one was a scathing critique of the Roman sacramental system accusing this abusive system of holding the church in captivity. Just like the children of Israel were held captive by Babylon, so also, incredibly, the church is holding its people captive. While he is writing this particular work, the Pope, at this time, Pope Leo X, was writing his papal bull, Exurge Domine, which means rise up, O Lord, in which he condemns Luther's works as heretical, and he gives Luther 60 days to recant or be excommunicated. Now, to be an excommunicated priest meant certain death. So while the Pope was judging Luther, Luther was at the same time judging the church, writing them at the same time. He condemned it. The sacramental system. By the way, the 60 days that he was given came and went. In fact, on the 60th day, Luther publicly burned the papal bull. I I, I guess that means he didn't recant. All of that brings us then to what is the biblical basis for this teaching that salvation is to be found only in Christ. Let me give you a few of the very obvious ones. These are ones that you know. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus is getting ready to go back to heaven. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me. You want to come to heaven? You want to come to the Father? You must come through Christ alone. Acts chapter 4. 
Peter is preaching. Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands, the man who had been healed in chapter 3, this man stands before you in good health. He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation. Listen, listen. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. I want you to catch that. We're going to come back to you. You must be saved by the name and work of Jesus. That's it. And the final nail in the coffin, First Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is central to solus Christus. There's only one to whom we confess our sins and find forgiveness, and that is through Jesus Christ. This is the truth of solus Christus. The book of Hebrews is full, filled with the truth that Jesus is not only better than anyone or anything, but, but, but the only way through whom our sins can be atoned. We're going to be studying Hebrews after the Gospel of Mark, so I'll save it until then. The book of Galatians, which I'm sure many Protestant churches are studying this month, or at least they should be. You say, why aren't we? Because we're doing this. Uh, it's clear that nothing in the book of Galatians, is the reason he wrote the book of Galatians, it's clear that nothing can be added to Christ. To add anything to Christ is to make Christ of no value. Reformers were clear to say that Jesus alone is our prophet, priest, and king, meaning Christ is the prophet of whom Moses spoke, who alone brings the full and final revelation of God and salvation to us. He alone is the high priest who makes intercession for his people through his own sacrifice. And he alone is the king, the ultimate authority to whom we owe our sole allegiance. You don't owe your ultimate allegiance to this church. You owe it to Christ. Earlier I suggested that there was a critical distinction to be made between the Roman church and the reformers and their theology, whereas the Roman church says that we receive the infused righteousness of Christ through the observance of the sacraments, and thereby we earn grace. The reformers said, no, we receive not the infused, an important word, the imputed righteousness of Christ as a free gift of His grace. Paul makes it clear that we are counted righteous in Christ because we receive His imputed righteousness. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Jesus gets our sin and we get His righteousness. That's a good trade. We are counted righteous before God right now by simple faith. In Jesus Christ, I don't have to jump through sacramental hoops to be saved. You don't have to do that. Reformation recovered the exclusive identity and full sufficiency of Christ, which brings us to the last point. What about today? Is solus Christus still true? I hope you're answering yes. And is it still needed? Now, more than ever, for the following reasons. First, never has the person that is the identity of Jesus been more attacked both inside and outside the church. Again, the Roman church never denied the deity of Christ. By their sacramental system, they denied the sufficiency of His work, but they never denied His divine sonship. We, however, much more sophisticated, have people all over who deny His deity. Listen carefully. 
Your eternal destiny lies in a proper confession of Jesus as Lord, the Son of God, God in the flesh. If you do not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, I want to be very clear, you are not a Christian. It's indispensable. Cults, cults always deny the person or work of Christ. For example, some deny his deity in a couple of ways. Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses deny his essential deity. That is, they say that he was not God like the Father is God. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. Mormons, I don't care what President Jimmy Carter says, they are not Christians. They deny his exclusive deity because at the heart of Mormonism, everyone who follows the teachings of the so-called Church of Latter-day Saints, I say so-called because they're not a church, they are a cult, they teach, you follow the teaching of Mormon, one day you will be a God like Jesus. Did you know that? So I have a book in my library called The Godmakers. That's what Mormonism teaches. They don't teach the exclusive deity of Jesus, a cult. Not unlike false world religions, Islam, for example, denies the essential deity of Jesus. They say he was a great guy, good prophet, not the son of God. Wrong. Hinduism and Buddhism denies the exclusive deity of Jesus because, like Mormonism, follow their teaching and one day you will be absorbed into Brahman, Nirvana, whatever. You'll be absorbed into the divine. Wrong. Let's bring this a little bit closer to home. So last week we talked about the Enlightenment, the age of reason, followed by liberalism, followed by modernism, followed by where we are now, postmodernism. And they deny both the exclusive identity, the, the, the exclusive person, and the sufficient work of Jesus. That is, they deny his deity. Come on, come on. That's untenable. You, you really believe that Jesus, I mean, he may, have been a great, he may have been a great guy, but come on, God in the flesh. They deny his miraculous works to include, again, both his miracles and his atoning work, since his atoning work required a resurrection. You don't believe in resurrection. Many will say he was a good man, one who, whose teaching changed the world, one whose moral teaching we should perhaps follow, but he was neither the divine son of God nor was his work in any way atoning. Second and perhaps a greater challenge to the church, one I have been suggesting is the greatest threat to the church. I've been suggesting for 20 years, over 20 years, this is the greatest threat and is not Islam. It, persecution actually strengthens the church. It separates the men from the boys. Bring it on. That's not the greatest threat. Never has been. The church flourishes in persecution. The greatest threat comes from within, and it's called pluralism. Listen carefully. The Roman church never said that Jesus was unnecessary for salvation. They just added uh, too simple faith in Christ. But pluralism is quite different. Pluralism is the teaching that there is more than one way to get to heaven. Trust in any belief system, any religion, any faith. That doesn't matter. And it will get you there. There is truth, they say, in all faiths. We shouldn't be so arrogant to think that Jesus is the only way. He may be a way, but he's not the only way. In other words, Jesus is unnecessary for salvation. 
believe whatever you want. Believe in Jesus, fine. Don't believe in Jesus, fine. Believe whatever you want, you'll be fine. Believe in Buddha. Believe in Muhammad. I have several problems with this thinking. First, it makes Jesus a liar or at least mistaken. It makes the writers of Scripture liars, deluded, or mistaken. But, oh, I guess that's okay since we've already denied the inspiration and inerrancy and authority of Scripture anyway. You see, people understand that to accept the Bible as God's Word is to make Jesus exclusive. You see, this sounds so arrogant. No, that's not arrogant. That's Christian. Jesus is the one who said that he alone is the way to the Father. He, later in, in John chapter 17, he's praying to the Father. And he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, his Son. C.S. Lewis addressed this famously in his work, Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the, the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You could shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being some great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was either a lunatic he was neither a lunatic nor a friend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept of you that he was and is God. Second, such teaching makes missions, that is the preaching of the, the good news, the gospel around the world, and makes it unnecessary. I mean, think about it. What a wasted life. I mean, let's bring our missionaries home. Worse than that, if people can, get, can make it, Apart from faith in Jesus, it seems to me that we make people culpable by preaching to them. It would seem better to leave them in their blissful ignorance. If they can make it without knowing about Jesus, it seems to me if we tell them about Jesus and they don't believe, now they're culpable. Let's let them be ignorant. Why then in the world would Jesus tell his disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth if people can get there without the gospel? Third, as I already stated, if people can get to heaven apart from Jesus, then ultimately his cross was nice, nice gesture, but unnecessary. Why would Jesus have to die taking the sins of the world and his body on a cross to be raised again the third day if such suffering and sacrifice was unneeded, optional? Why would he do that? Listen, the truth of solus Christus is Christ alone is not only sufficient for salvation, he is absolutely necessary for salvation. We must take the gospel around the world. There is no other way to the Father. Couple of final thoughts as I close. Martin 
Luther said, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. Jesus plus nothing is salvation. When you ask many today, even in churches, where will you go when you die? Some say something like, well, heaven, I hope. When you then ask why, you will get a myriad of answers. Well, I try to be a good person. I'm, I, I'm, I'm good to other people. I, I follow the golden rule. I'm better than a lot of people. I'm certainly not bad as most as if God grades on the curve. As long as I can be better. And as I've said before, everybody can always play the Hitler card. Better than Hitler, good for you. Church people will even give you spiritual answers. Well, I tried to go to church. Great. Try to pray. Read my Bible. If you then follow those answers with, well, you know, what about the gospel to these church people? What about the gospel? That is, what about uh, who Jesus is and what he did for you when he died on the cross as a substitute of bearing your sins in his body on the cross? And not only that, uh, he, he was raised again on the third day as proof that God has accepted his sacrifice. What about the gospel? Listen, I've asked that question, what about the gospel? Often I've heard people say, well, yeah, that too. I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus will not be that He is either everything or he is nothing. It is either Christ alone or no Christ at all. Why will you go to heaven when you die? Because of Christ and his finished work alone. Which means, last thing I'm going to say to you, I want to encourage you, the strength of your salvation is not dependent on the strength of your faith It is found in the strength of the one believed. So, right now, and I know, I know, because I did this for years, years. You can stop asking yourself the question, did I believe enough? Is my faith strong enough? Did I do it right? Did I say the right words? Did I really mean it? Stop. Your salvation is dependent not on the strength of your faith, not on doing it right. It is based on him doing it right, and he did. Christ alone. Stand for prayer. Father, we have a problem, and our problem is that we always want to contribute to that which we cannot do. We always want to, we, we always want to contribute to our salvation. We, we always think that we can do something to earn it. And at the end of the day, there is nothing we bring to the table except our sin. And Jesus, when we come in faith, says, yes, I will take that. I died for you. And by simple faith, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, sins can be removed, forgiven, forgotten. This is good news. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did in Christ's name. Amen.